Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to episode 106 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. As today's guest, Jonathan Cohen writes, quote, Bruce Springsteen might be the quintessential American rock musician, but his songs have resonated with fans from all walks of life and from all over the world, unquote. Indeed, Springsteen is popular because his music captures so much that is true about the human experience. And his shows are darn entertaining. I've published a few things about Springsteen over the years, mostly op-eds and blog posts thinking about Springsteen in his American context. Most of my work has been favorable to Springsteen. What can I say? I'm a fan. It's difficult to balance my love of Springsteen's music with something close to scholarly objectivity. For example, back in 2012, I wrote a piece on my experience seeing him live in Philadelphia with my family. I wrote, quote, as I watched him run from one side of the stage to the other, raising his hands to excite the crowd, I was imagining what it would have been like to see Billy Sunday or some other revival preacher who was able to inspire tens of thousands of people with one sermon. I wish I could say that I was watching the concert in this sort of detached scholarly way. But as my family will tell you, I was clearly part of the congregation, raising my arms and singing the words to every song. I guess you could call me a participant observer. At different points in the concert, the lights were turned on to reveal 45,000 fans chanting and fist pumping in unison. It was something to behold. Bruce Springsteen may just be superhuman. This guy will soon turn 63. Yet he runs around the stage like an 18-year-old. The intensity is absolutely amazing. It was a very humid night, and within about 30 minutes, he was soaking wet with sweat. So was the band. I left the concert exhausted. I felt like I needed a full day to recover. But the boss did a concert the next night. I've never seen anything like this. Indeed, Springsteen performs until there is not a drop left in his proverbial tank. This is really hard to explain without witnessing it, unquote. A piece I wrote after seeing Springsteen's show on Broadway in 2019. Quote, Springsteen understands that the past often has its way with us, 
shaping us, haunting us, defining us, motivating us, and empowering us. Like a priest conducting mass, Springsteen asks the audience to receive the Lord's Prayer as a quote-unquote benediction, perhaps a final blessing from a music legend who was never quite able to outrun the sound of the church bells, unquote. Maybe this is what it means, I continue, quote, as he wrote famously in Born to Run, to get to that place where we really want to go, where we can walk in the sun. Maybe Bruce Springsteen was born to run home. Over the years, Springsteen has become the darling of progressive politicians. He campaigned for John Kerry in 2004, Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, and briefly for Hillary Clinton in 2016. But when he tells his story on Broadway, he transports us back to a day when progressive ideals and the relentless quest for the American dream were not separated from tradition, roots, place, a longing for home, and Christian faith. Unquote. Springsteen is now 73 years old, and he is preparing for yet another world tour with the E Street Band in 2023. And academics, public intellectuals, cultural critics, and yes, even historians remain fascinated with his interpretation of the American experience. Like me, Jonathan Cohen, our guest today, is one of those members of the thinking classes who admire the work of the boss. So whether you are a Springsteen fan, a music fan generally, or a student of American culture, I think you will enjoy this conversation with the co-editor of Long Walk Home, Reflections on Bruce Springsteen. Stay tuned. Jonathan Cohen will be with us in a moment. But first, let's take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that includes this bi-monthly podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics. Head over to currentpub.com and click the red support button, or go directly to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash current. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at John Fia, J-O-H-N-F-E-A one. Or you can follow current at Twitter at current underscore pub one. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Jonathan D. Cohen is a program officer at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He is the co-editor of All In, 
The Spread of Gambling in 20th Century United States, which was published in 2018 with the University of Nevada Press. And he is the author of For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. That was published in 2022 with Oxford University Press. He is also the founding managing editor of BOSS, the biannual online journal of Springsteen Studies. Cohen received his PhD in history from the University of Virginia and his BA from McGill University. Our interview today is based on his book, co-edited with June Skinner Sawyer's The Long Walk Home, Reflections on Bruce Springsteen. That book was published in 2019 with Rutgers University Press. Our guest today on the program is Jonathan D. Cohen. He is the co-editor of a 2019 book with Rutgers University Press titled Long Walk Home, Reflections on Bruce Springsteen. Also, we'll be discussing his brand new book, Just Out with Oxford University Press, For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. But I think it's safe to say that most of our discussion will be Springsteen-focused. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks. And any lottery talk is welcome, but you know, let's let's keep it to Springsteen as much as that's we can right. happily. That's right. Yeah. I want to at least get you get you to talk a little bit later about the new book. Um, so you are trained UVA PhD, social cultural historian. Uh, your scholarship, you edited a book about gambling, you write about lotteries. Um, you know, why Springsteen? How does Springsteen fit into sort of your scholarly trajectory? Yeah. And you know, this is a book. Long Walk Home about Springsteen stories. So, you know, what is your Springsteen story? It's not nearly as dramatic uh, as some of the ones in the book. And it, I think it's it's probably a good thing that I just wrote the introduction and didn't write anything else. You know, I've, I think I found Springsteen, you know, in a classic rock catalog, so to speak, my mom's old CDs kind of thing. Um, and I don't know, one way or another, it ended up being not just one of the guys, and I mean the guys, you know, very literally, but but the guy fairly quickly. And, and maybe you can relate to this as as another academic that the way you show your love and affection for something when you ha- have these academic inclinations is to write uh, books about them and and edit and put together semi scholarly anthologies. Most people, Jonathan, do this at the end of their careers. Though they write <laughs> about baseball or you know something like that. Right, but right. You right. started out very early. With and it. frankly, I think the Springsteen stuff helped both my confidence as a scholar and was sort of an entree into the world of academia. And there, I had this field, the nichest of nichest of fields of Springsteen studies, but where I felt I was an expert and had a level of expertise that I didn't have in American history. And where I was confident writing conference papers or chapters for edited collections. And again, a way that I wasn't for American history. And that helped sort of in the way that you, you know, it's always good to practice uh, on, you know, it's something that's not going to make the final cut, but you've sort of earned your chops. That's sort of what I felt like I was able to do with the Springsteen work. So how did you balance, you know, you didn't write your dissertation on Springsteen, you know, how did you kind of become an expert? Was it just, you know, obviously you're academically trained, so it wasn't just like you're a buff, you know, who just happens to write, you know, because Springsteen, you love his music or something. Yeah. Like, how did I, yeah. that sort of mesh with your professional career as a historian and then, you know, uh, your passion for Springsteen, which you have turned into another kind of 
Right. I don't know if you want to call it a side hustle or some kind of, you know, set. You know. What's a side hustle where you don't make any money, whatever, whatever that's called. I would say, and key for this, and I've told him this before, was Jefferson Cowie's book, Staying Alive on the 1970s and the working class. And when I read that as a junior in college, I was awoken to what the idea of what scholarship could be is like, oh, he's writing about Springsteen in a real important, Springsteen is not just like a side chapter. This is sort of constitutive to the argument that he's making about the development and the transition of the working class in the sort of deindustrializing era of the 1970s and 1980s. And that totally opened my eyes of, of what I could do and what, and what I could be. I will confess, sort of write my master's thesis on sort of Springsteen related, again, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do in graduate school. And we can get into this, but sort of thinking I was interested in working class history sort of specifically in a, in a narrow kind of old fashioned way in the labor history, working class history kind of vein. Um, so my master's thesis is actually about the deindustrialization of Freehold, New Jersey, of Springsteen's hometown and the closing of a uh, 3M factory there in 1986 that has all these parallels to the closing of the rug mill where Springsteen's father briefly worked. And then in the protest during the closing of the 3M plant, uh, my hometown is sort of the anthem. Uh, and there's all this tie in with African apartheid movement. That was a really great paper. Again, a really great entree, I felt, into the world of scholarship. And also after I finished, I was like, all right, I think that's enough Springsteen stuff. Let me see what else is out there, which ultimately got me to the lottery world. Are you from New Jersey? No, but my wife is. That's that's okay. her claim to fame among many others. Yeah, I, we did an interview. I think it was last year, two years ago. We interviewed the, I'm blanking on her name right now. You might know it. The woman who's the curator, Melissa of the of the Springsteen exhibit in Freehold uh, Historical Society, Melissa, I want to say Ziabro or something to that effect. Yeah, and I think she used to edit this the Jersey New That's Jersey right. Studies uh, Journal where I published my master's thesis. But got you, got you. And just a shout out too for that Jefferson Cowie book, Staying Alive. It's a great book, and you know I was attracted to it because of his coverage of Springsteen in there as well. And just you know, if you are, if you know that book or read that book, Cowie and Joel Dinnerstein have a sort of joint kind of reflection here on the popular artist in a democratic society in Long Walk Home. So uh, that's a good essay to check out if you're a Jefferson Cowie fan. And you can imagine that was a dream come true for me of getting him to contribute. And, and, and it's a great, great piece that I think sparks a lot of questions, even in this day and age post Springsteen about what an artist is supposed to do in a, in a democracy in crisis. Yeah. I mean, you, you got some great people writing here, you know, Eric Alterman, uh, Louis Mazur, Cowie, uh, Gina Barreca, who I used to read her blog years ago before we came on Jim Cullen. We were talking about Jim Cullen, who you confirmed to me was the first a uh, scholar who actually wrote about Springsteen in a serious way. Uh, I loved his essay titled Summer's Fall, Springsteen in, what is it, Sen- Senescence? Yeah, that's Springsteen yeah. and Aging, which uh, aging. As, yeah. as you might know is is uh, gonna, it's a big topic and is going to be a bigger topic uh, in Absolutely. the years to come. Yeah, and uh, I think there'll be a lot of reflections on that as people get to see the new tour and and how you know, how he does physically. Right. right. Or, 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 or how he does it, how maybe it's the opposite. He seems not to age. So maybe the right. topic is how he has somehow discovered yeah. the fountain of youth. I guess if you sell your catalog for $500 million, that That's probably right. helps. Yeah. Yeah. Now you are uh, the founder uh, and man, you were the managing editor. You're still on the editorial board, but you were the key is here. You were the founder of an online journal called BOSS, the biannual online journal of Springsteen studies. Tell us a little bit how that started. 
Yeah, well, I, I attended, and and you may have, or may, maybe some of your listeners have, the uh, the Monmouth University conferences uh, on Springsteen. I attended my first one. I don't know, it must have been 2014, 20, whatever the around around that time. And I and I had been in talks basically with a few folks there about starting what would, what would have been effectively a, a scholarly organization devoted to Springsteen. And then at some point we talked about a journal, and I realized, oh, a journal is actually what I want to do and actually what I'm interested in. And in part, that was born of, and this was confirmed the second time I was able to attend the conference. There are all these people writing these amazing papers about Springsteen, and maybe the top one percent of them are going to get published in American Quarterly or some journal. And the other 99% are sort of sitting on folks' laptops and maybe they'll put the work in to make them a journal article, but maybe not. And having a venue uh, where, frankly, the barrier of entry is a little bit lower with interdisciplinary journal, it's meant to appeal to a, a wider audience rather than just academics. Um, and that would give folks an opportunity to showcase their scholarship, uh, again, from, from any discipline uh, by which they choose to sort of apply their lens to Springsteen. And that was sort of the impetus. And, and, and so far, you know, issue number four coming out sometime early next year. Now you then spend a lot of time interacting with reading the work of people writing about Springsteen, all disciplines, you know, kind of academics, uh, non-academics, you know, there's, there's sometimes with Springsteen, it's hard to decipher the academic from the music critic, you know, there's a kind of blurry line there. But you have, perhaps more than anyone else, have had this kind of catbird seat uh, to see all of the stuff that's out there, not only through attending the uh, the Monmouth conferences, at, or, but also editing. So uh, tell me, you know, we historians like to use the word historiography, you know, maybe that's not the right word, but but tell me where the current state of Springsteen studies is, or maybe how has it changed over time since like Jim Cullen wrote in the 1980s? Yeah, I'm happy to say it's it's gotten a lot better. And I would say I came onto the scene, you know, maybe around 2010, 2011. And I think the field was sort of rounding into form and leaving a phase uh, that was defined by sort of hagiographic, semi-autobiographical or fully by autobiographical um, oh, here's my love for Springsteen, and I'm just expressing this in this book. And there's and a lot of that was um, was just sort of song analysis and lyrical analysis, which is all well and good. But how many books of lyrical analysis do you really need? And sort of uh, the racing in the street can only be be discussed so many times before you sort of start rolling your eyes. I will also say that that field in that time was very white and very male in terms of the people who were getting book deals and getting sort of the space um, to to publish about Springsteen. And around the early 2000s, and I think the sort of, excuse me, the early 2010s, and I think the new tours um, helped spark wider interest and sort of put him back uh, on the on the forefront of people's minds. Um, since then, I've seen the field become a, a lot more diverse, still very, very white, but the, the Monmouth conferences are, I don't think there are any, you know, more than 50, 50 male, female, for example. But the also the, the types of dis- disciplinary approaches um, have gotten a lot wider. I think the quality of the research has frankly gotten better in that folks no longer think that they can just sit on their phone and listen to a couple songs a few times and see a couple a couple through lines for a couple songs and call that a paper. Um, I think the standards have gotten a little bit better and the sort of rigor um, that was to be expected. And maybe because we were in this flush time and there wasn't that much writing, so anything could sort of get through the cracks and now our, our standards are higher. Um, but also I think it's, it's only the diehards and the weirdos who are still sort of listening to the new music and hanging on if, if we're being honest. Um, and I think 
some of those some of those scholars who are not weirdos like that are helping keeping the rest of us grounded. Yeah, yeah, so so interesting. I encourage you, the listeners, to read. Uh, uh, find easy to find. Just Google it. Boss, the biannual online journal of Springsteen Studies. I was telling uh, Jonathan before we came on that you know maybe one day I'll get my act together and try to submit something. Um, I'm really interested in Springsteen's Catholicism, and I know there's been a lot written about that, but uh, yeah. Um, I got a few other angles I'd like to explore on that. So in the introduction to Long Walk Home, uh, you write or you and your co-author, I don't know whose actually words they are, June Skinner Sawyer, you write, quote, what allows Springsteen's music to feel so personal for so many people, you ask? One of the goals of this book is to find out. So this is a book of kind of testimonials uh, from people, very smart people. Uh, writing about Springsteen. Give us a couple of your favorite essays and, you know, why you like them so much. Yeah, I mean, two stand out, and I frankly uh, wish more of the essays in the collection were were like these two, um, but they're personal reflections on Springsteen from the exact kind of person you would never expect to have a Springsteen story, not to mention have an essay in the book with their personal reflection uh, on Springsteen. The first is by Deepa Iyer, a social justice activist who moved from India to Kentucky with her family in, I think it was the early 80s, and basically was getting bullied in school and had no entree sort of into American life and sort of found Springsteen by accident. It didn't gain her any popularity at school, but she has this great moving essay about how it was sort of in three times in her life, both when she was a kid, then again in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and the rise of Islamophobia, and then again after the 2016 election, uh, how Springsteen sort of served as a guiding light uh, for her and her work and, and her sort of philosophy and her views about America uh, and, the, and the possibility that America is, is a good and, and welcoming place. Um, and the second one, a bit of an analog to that, um, is by Natalie Adler. I think the initial title was um, Our Butch Lesbian Mom, Bruce Springsteen. I think we revised the title uh, ultimately, but sort of uh, applying a, a lesbian interpretive lens uh, uh, to Springsteen, which maybe might elicit some eye rolls, but this is not sort of one of these theoretical, you don't need to read the footnotes and see Judith Butler in there. It's a real sort of sassy take on how Bruce Springsteen sort of serves as a father uh, for his listeners. And maybe not the kind of father that we would envision. I think Natalie, her words are sort of a daddy type father, this sort of butch uh, lesbian sort of version, um, which again, she's not saying Bruce Springsteen is a lesbian, but she's saying this, this is how I see Bruce Springsteen and uh, how he serves for me. Um, and I think that we would, we would benefit from a lot of people like her sort of applying their own diverse perspectives uh, on him and his work. The Iyer piece reminds me a lot of, um, the uh, I'm going to pronounce his first name wrong. This is it Sarfraz uh, Manzor. Manzor's the, yeah. the, the, the move. What was the title of that movie? Bl- the movie was Blinded by the Light. The book is Greetings yeah. from Bury Park. Yeah, similar yeah. kind of. Um, I believe he was Pakistan or from Pakistan, and yeah. the way Springsteen kind of helped him adjust. Um, what you think of that movie, by the way? Uh, a, a little corny. Uh, yeah, my wife I, liked it. <laughs> my words exactly. I dragged my I dragged my uh, at the time high school daughter to see it, and she was like, "What is that? Come on!" You know. I mean, yeah, if, if, what, if if you're a fan and you're, yeah. you're sort of if you're a fan and you're not a soulless academic, I yeah. I, I I think you like it. And if I wasn't such a soulless, yeah. uh, uh, heartless guy, maybe I would too. I had fun with it, you know, but it was just kind of, you know, it's just fun to watch and anything devoted to Springsteen. But yeah, I thought it was a little corny. I haven't read the book. Is the book more serious, more? um, Um, 
Yeah, a little bit. I mean, he doesn't break out the song in the middle of the book. <laughs> and, 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 you know, he's got, he's yeah. got his, his, his cute little writerly gimmicks um, over yeah. the course of the book. I thought, I thought the book was okay. Um, again, I, I, and I'll take and I'll surface any um, people of color who are, you know, typically excluded from the Springsteen yeah. world who are sort of willing to put themselves out there like this and who are willing to help us, sure. all of us, broaden our conception of what Springsteen fans look like. Yeah, my my daughter and I had a running joke for a while, and I kind of raised, I have two daughters, they're both in their 20s, raised both of them on Springsteen. But we had a running joke for a while where, uh, you know, there's that final scene where they're, I can't remember where they're at. And once one the kid says to the other kid, like, hey, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run, you know, or something. It just sends that kind of chill, like that unhealthy chill that, eh, you know, down your spine. And, and, and um, I think we're probably the only two Springsteen fans that didn't like it. So everyone else can uh, yeah, know, knows yeah. where to find us over email to complain. Yeah, yeah good. Um, but go see it. You know, if you're a Springsteen fan, it's worth seeing. So um, one of my favorite uh, writers in the kind of American studies kind of vein, um, anything he'll read, anything he writes, I'll pick up and at least look at it is uh, uh, Louis Mazur. Um, I think he's now at Rutgers, but he's yeah. kind of bounced around different places um, and a big Springsteen fan. I remember a Chronicle of Higher Education piece he wrote maybe a decade, more than a decade ago, maybe more him singing, I think, Born to Run in his classroom uh, and how he uses Springsteen in the classroom. Um, but um, in his essay, which is uh, let me just make sure I get the title here of his essay. Uh, Springsteen's American Dream, similar to his title of his book. Yeah. Um, he writes, uh, or he calls Springsteen a quote-unquote lyrical historian. And, you know, there's been uh, stuff written, and Springsteen himself talks about, you know, how he tries to, you know, he likes Howard Zinn, and, you know, he read these things, and it changed, he read some of this new left historiography, and it changed the way he thought about um you know, the American experience and his music and so forth. I mean, he's always invoking uh, the past, uh, probably a little bit more in his recent stuff than in yeah. his older stuff. But uh, but is, is Mazer right? You know, to what extent is Springsteen a lyrical historian? Yeah, I, I think, and I, and I love Lou's essay, I think there's a little bit of that phenomenon of hoping to see oneself in their heroes uh, and Lou, as a as a historian, for example, is sort of looking to Springsteen as a historian in the way that a mathematician might look to Springsteen and see math, a mathematician somehow. But I, I do think there's actually more than that here. I think he, he has hit on something. Whereas, you know, if if a Martian only, you know, the only left thing left of American civilization was a Bruce Springsteen's catalog, I think a Martian could do a pretty good job reconstructing the history of the late 20th century and early 21st century and of the decline of the working class and the Rust Belt. Uh, issues over immigration, um, sort of runaway financial capitalism. Um, I, I think we would do a pretty good job. And, and Bruce, and you alluded to this, especially on albums like Wrecking Ball, um, has applied this uh, long tail consciousness and the sense that what America is going through today, in this in this case, he was talking about the sort of immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, um, is not the first time that we have dealt with this issue, um, even if it has become sort of more acute uh, in the, in the 20s in 21st century, this is something that was happening with railroad strikes in the 1880s, uh, with immigration in the mid 20th century, and then now only now with Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs in, in 2010 2012. 
Yeah, I think it's most overt on Wrecking Ball. I, I'm, I'm I'm terrible with the titles, but isn't it We Are Alive? Is that the song? Yeah, that, that's that exactly. Starts with the railroad strike and the yeah. Um, so so yeah, I think I think as obviously as Springsteen gets older, he taps into this. Um, I have a similar take on 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 Mazer, but that that you know brings me another question. I kind of didn't prep you for, but like, do you see at the boss, you know, the the journal? How many people actually write about Springsteen in a completely, I mean, he can't be completely objective, right? But I'm talking about a sort of fandom objectivity, right? Yeah. You know, it's really hard. Like, I can't, I don't think I could ever, if I ever wrote something on Springsteen, you know, some longer piece, I've written a few op-eds here and there. I don't think I could ever separate, get the kind of scho- the, the scholarly yeah. distance, you know? It would have to be something kind of like, you know, academically sound, but kind of using Bruce to point towards some better, like better future. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, but you, you probably could about like Leonard Skinner, but like, yeah, why, yeah, but, but yeah. you wouldn't be, you're not motivated to write about Leonard Skinner. So, right. so it's sort of a, right. a weird counterfactual. Yeah. I think a lot of folks sort of come in the door. Fandom is what gets them in the door. And as much as they're able to apply this sort of scholarly quote unquote objective lens, um, they do. I, 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 I tried to um, be against the grain a little bit when it comes to the Springsteen scholarship. And I have an essay uh, in a different edited collection, sort of basically poking at all these scholars who've basically tried to read their own politics into Springsteen and claim that, you know, especially in the eighties that he was this sort of anti-Reagan figure and he just was not. And here's a great quote from 1987 um, that my politics are, I'm not really, I'm not very political. My politics are in my songs, whatever they may be. Uh, when and people love to champion him as this figure of the new left and he just, yeah. he just wasn't. So I, I, I it's, it's a problem. Uh, I think it's one that editors have to, to look out for. Um, but also let's be frank about who's going to read a Springsteen journal. It's going to be also people who are fans or have are fan adjacent. Um, so I think it's sort of welcome as long as it doesn't get too over the line. Yeah, absolutely. Well put. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your, your recent book on state lotteries for a dollar and a dream. You know, again, we're focused here on Springsteen, but I want to give you a chance to talk about that. And uh, and in my next question, I'm going to ask you to make some connections. I don't yeah. know if you've ever even thought about this, but first tell me, but first tell me about the book. Yeah, well, so the new book uh, is sort of the first comprehensive history of state lotteries uh, published in the last 30 years. Sort of two focuses. One is on these uh, lottery players, uh, often deemed to be irrational, wishful, stupid, uh, hopeful that they're ever going to hit a jackpot. Um, and actually the parallels between these lottery players who I think are actually playing for social mobility and their own chance at the American dream, uh, the parallels between them and the legislators, voters, policymakers who enacted lotteries because of the wishful, hopeful, irrational belief that a lottery would solve their state's financial problems. So this, this judgment that we have about lottery players is actually something pretty widespread and pretty endemic uh, to American policymaking and American politics and helps explain how over the course of just five decades, we went from $5 million in sales in one state lottery uh, to 45 state lotteries with almost $100 billion in sales. Yeah, it's really interesting. Again, I encourage you to go out and, and check this out for a dollar and a dream state lotteries in modern America. A lot of the listeners might be really interested, and you got like five or six pages in here on the, the relationship between prayer and state lotteries. Uh, give it, give us the elevator, elevator speech there. Yeah, I think yeah. some of our listeners might, this might draw them into the book. Yeah. 
so this is this is a, a chapter about that I, what I call sort of merit and miracles in the 1970s. In that, bef- basically, bef- in the 1970s, there was not yet this phenomenon of the man on the street lottery player interviews. So all the news about lottery lotteries at the time is about lottery winners. And frequently, and this was coincides with the rise of the prosperity gospel, are these lottery winners in the 1970s who claim that God answered their prayers or provided their jackpot for them um, in what one prosperity gospel calls, and I think is, it applies here, a, um, a miraculous meritocracy, whereas that rather than they, they take this sort of qu- the lottery, which is the quintessential vehicle of chance and randomness, and they sort of rhetorically transform it into a meritocratic um, a source of wealth distribution, whereas God rewards the just and the deserving and the hardworking through the lottery of all things. Um, and I, I, again, I think this, this ethos still applies. And if you read about modern lottery winners, many of them sort of still, still give their thanks to God. But if you're not willing to, to, uh, to acknowledge that your win is random, you got sort of only one place left to turn and that place is up uh, for a lot of people. And then that's what, what leads them to prayer. Next time, next time I see a Powerball winner or something who gives thanks to God, I want to see an op-ed from you, <laughs> right? Right. explaining explaining this. Yeah, that was a great part. I, I love that part. And I, you know, you you think you know you never really think about it in a kind of scholarly kind of way like right. you do, right? And at um, the time, again, this was sort of the only thing that people knew about lotteries. These were like the, yeah. some of the first lottery winners in the whole country, and this yeah. is what sort of shaping their uh, people's belief about how yeah. these games work and and what they mean. So tell me this, okay? I don't know if you thought about this or not. Um, You know, I I asked you to think about it, but you could just completely reject the question too. Um, Any, how would you, how would you make, are there any intellectual connections, right? You know, I, I, I sometimes, you know, get accused of sort of putting thinkers in a box too much, right? So, you know, this could be a completely bad question. You may have two compartments where you write about lotteries, you write about Springsteen, but I'm sensing, you know, just based on reading some of your stuff that there's, you know, some intellectual connection between uh, the American dream, right, of the lottery and your interest and your work on Springsteen, Um, any thoughts on that? So I'll give I'll give it a I'll give it a whack. I'll give it a try. Okay, yeah. So yeah. so first of all, and this is no one in the world would possibly know this. On the first day that California lottery tickets went on sale, there was or the second day, excuse me, there was a picture in the LA Times of a woman buying lottery tickets, and she's wearing a Bruce Springsteen born in the USA t-shirt. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is. I mean, I couldn't get the permission that's for the great. photos, but that that was like, oh man, that's that's the dream. So okay, that that's one sort of very small connection. Yeah. That does actually point, and I will say that does sort of offhandedly point to the fact that we're really talking about the same time period, which is 1970s, 1980s uh, into the 21st century. Um, the second, and sort of the, this is a bit of a bit of a deep cut, but if folks might know the song "Used Cars" uh, on Nebraska, uh, the sort of the, the song is one of these class laden ballads of a told from Springsteen sings from, sings from the perspective of a young child who basically is embarrassed that their father keeps going back to this uh, used car salesman and getting all these old beat up cars uh, for their family to drive around in because they can't afford anything better. And the kid says, Mr. The day the lottery I win, I ain't never going to ride a no used car again. Um, which again, I, again, we're talking about 1982, which is right around the time that big jackpot games are emerging. And we're also talking about a new car, a new car specifically delivered by a lottery jackpot as being part of this ethos and this rising mentality of wealth and sort of sticking it to the man. Um, and uh, as you said, sort of this this new this new idea uh, that gambling might provide the American dream. Actually, not such a new idea if you read Jim Cullen's book, but a new manifestation uh, of the idea that gambling could provide the American dream. 
And then, and then the last one, uh, as you alluded to, is this sort of the, the economic and social climate in which both Springsteen puts out his work uh, and or that, that is reflected in Springsteen work and into which lotteries emerge, which is uh, a, a government that is increasingly focused on spurring markets rather than providing social services and helping people um, in which this, these ideas of the American dream are changing from sort of a white picket fence in the suburbs to sort of ultra wealth and, and what that's doing to our social fabric and our society. So I think we're, we're, we're talking about the same sort of general set of issues. Um, obviously, you know, we're talking about them very differently uh, when it comes to gambling and Springsteen. And, and I haven't even gotten to his song roll of the dice, uh, but I, I don't think, I think that's a little, a little uh, beyond, beyond the scope of, of my work. Yeah, why not? Right? Yeah. Um, no, I appreciate you. T- I appreciate you doing that little exercise for me. I don't know if anyone's ever asked you that before, or you thought through it. So, uh, yeah. so or maybe maybe over over a dinner table, but never uh, never with yeah. a microphone on that I have to actually give it real serious thought. Well, th- well, thanks yeah. for doing it for me, and I think our listeners will appreciate it. Um, so let's talk about some contemporary stuff. Uh, Springsteen's got a a new co- album of covers out, but uh, the real, you know, to me, the real kind of issue, especially it's made been been brought back into the news kind of on the periphery with the whole Taylor Swift ticket master situation. Um, I got two daughters who I said, I raised them on Springsteen, but they also, you know, they saw that they saw Springsteen's appearance on Fallon the other night where he said that he would be, I don't know if you saw that. He said he would be attending the, Taylor Swift concerts. Well, only people and, like him can afford to go. That's why. Yeah, exactly. And then he said that Taylor Swift was quote unquote welcome on E Street anytime. So, you know, all kinds of speculations. Yeah. You know, is he going to be playing at these things? My my daughters went nuts. They both got tickets. They live in Michigan. They both got tickets uh, to the show in Detroit. But um, what's your take on this? You know, the dynamic pricing, this was new for Springsteen, if I'm not mistaken, right? This is the first time he did this. I did not get in um, dynamic pricing. I can't afford, uh, I don't think I can afford a show. Um, I want to go to State College or Philadelphia. Um, I still may figure out a way to get there. Um, I don't know, but it's 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 going to hurt to do that now. Um, what's your take on the whole uproar about the Springsteen, the price of the Springsteen tickets and the whole Ticketmaster yeah. issue? And, and I'll say that we're recording this a couple of days after, I believe it was a Rolling Stone interview in which Bruce sort of seemed to further acknowledge that he knew that some of this might happen and didn't quite deny that. Okay. That he didn't, he didn't say what people wanted him to say, which yeah, is, I didn't see oh, that. I'll have to yeah. check that out. Yeah. But he, I mean, he didn't, it, it, it's sort of a non-event because he didn't, what he didn't say was, Oh, this is, this is crazy. This is terrible. This violates everything that I stand for. Uh, people, you know, who can't working class people who I sing about and make my music should be able to get in. There, there was none of that. Um, uh, I, I think, and I wrote a, a short piece that you linked to on your website for which I'm appreciative um, in the Washington post sort of about how this uh, issue, or the, these, these ticket, this ticket phenomenon crisis, whatever you want to call it um, is what, what Backstreet's magazine called a crisis of faith uh, and why this is not just a PR problem, why this is sort of, really violates uh, the values um, of Springsteen's music, at least as his fans interpret them. And, you know, he's never been against making a buck. And I didn't hear anyone complaining when he sold his catalog to Sony, you know, good for him for making amazing music and and making money off of it. Um, The question is when the rubber hits the road of when, when fans are sort of left out uh, or, or unable to participate as a result. 
Yeah, for Springsteen too, it's perhaps more than most artists, if not all artists. It's the show, right? It's the show that's yeah. that's so important to his to his connection with his fans. Right. I mean, everybody, you know, you could say that about every artist, but you know. You know, yeah. I, I've, I'm on I'm on a few dozen. You know, I'm not one of these people. It's been the hundreds or whatever. You know, I've done a few dozen over the years, and you know, it's that's what you want. You know, that's the sh- you know, and and yeah. for for it to be so expensive. So yeah, but our expectations of him also are so different, uh, and uh, fairly so. You know, we don't expect Billy Joel. You know, I don't think if, if Billy Joel used dynamic pricing, I don't think anyone would really complain. It's yeah. sort of yeah. just the ethos and this sort of again, what seeing what we want to see. Uh, in Springsteen and and expecting him. And I will say, I have seen a study, I actually have not been able to find it again, that and basically what, exactly what's happening here, which is if if artists charge lower prices for their tickets up front, even if they get scalped to higher prices, people aren't mad at the artist because they're mad at the scalpers. Yeah. And that when you try to do exactly what Springsteen did, which is just raise the floor to prevent scalping, first of all, people scalp anyway, clearly is what we're seeing, but also now people direct their anger at the artists themselves rather than at the whole process or at the scalping phenomenon. And that's where I think Springsteen in the last couple of months has really lost people uh, by not recognizing exactly what's happening. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I'm kind of a little ticked off about it, but you know, if someone gave me free tickets or, you know, uh, maybe it's hypocritical, <laughs> you know, I mean, if someone, if I could, someone gave me, you know, a donation, go see Springsteen. I want you to write about it or something. You know, I take it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so hey, it's hard to... and, and here's an, here's another parallel. You gotta, you gotta literally win the lottery to have bought <laughs> face value tickets right. for, for this tour. Your there odds you are pro- probably just as bad as they are of hitting the mega millions. There you go. Uh, so, Jonathan, any, uh, you know, you're young in your career, you're a young man. Any uh, any future uh, projects you have in mind that you feel like talking about related to Springsteen? Uh, you still got the journal going. You're still on the board, editorial board of that. But yeah. any dream projects about what you want to write or? Yeah, I mean, and, well, first of all, I'll say I have a 10 month old. So that's sort of my uh, my academic project outside of my day job. Uh, uh, number one. Um, number two, I have sort of. I think what I what I what I really wanted out of Boss, and what I really wanted out of this spring, aborted Springsteen Scholarly Society that I thought about forming for five minutes, I really got to accomplish with Long Walk Home um, and with the press that that got, and we sort of released it to come out on Springsteen's 70th birthday uh, in 2019. Got to do an awesome book launch event at the Strand in New York City. That was sort of really checked the big Springsteen box uh, for me. And but it is like the Godfather, where every time you think you're out, they sort of pull you back in and. Uh, an editor from the Washington Post emails me and says, Hey, do you want to write about the Springsteen ticket fiasco? You know, who am I to say no? Um, so I, I've, I've thought, and I, and again, every time I think I'm out, I get, I get one more idea about, I, I would love to sort of try to see if I can, the sort of reputation that Springsteen has as a blue collar troubadour. Obviously that has a lot to do a lot with him and his own background and the way he dressed and the way he talked and what he sings about, but he has this, there's sort of this implication uh, that, and I'm sort of thinking this through with you in real time. So I'm, I'm interested in your, please, in your thoughts, please, yeah. um, that the, there's this implication that the audience is also blue collar and the expectation that they're also blue collar, except if you look at the, the, the set, the, the, the uh, concert list from the seventies and eighties, it's like upstate New York universities, which are sort of blue collar, but not in the way, you know, that we, we might expect. These are not the like, union halls. Obviously those are not big enough, but 
I, I would love to sort of see if I can disentangle who the actual audience was. Not that I'm expecting any demographic data or quantitative data, but to really read between the lines and see who these Springsteen listeners are, which I think has a lot of implications now for what we talk about when we talk about the politics of Springsteen's audience. Uh, and we sort of assume that they share his politics when indications are, I think they more often than not don't share his politics. I think you're on to something there. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine. Um, you know, I, I grew up, I grew up in the kind of working class, ethnic Italian, Slovak, North Jersey. Um, you know, I wasn't listening to Springsteen as a kid, you know, exactly. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't connecting in that way, you know, and, and I think you're right. It was mostly these kinds of, you know, college kind of progressive, maybe, maybe not even progressives. Yeah. I don't know. Right. But and yeah. There, and there's a great book that maybe you're familiar with um, called Rivet Head by Ben Hamper is sort of a, no, a, not. It's, it's yeah. one of my favorite books. It's his account from the late eighties of working in GM uh, yeah. in, in Flint. And he just hates Springsteen. He just, yeah. he just rails on him over and over again because the, he he sees Springsteen as performing what Ben Hamper does every day, uh, and yeah. and that to me is what I would anticipate. And I say this as someone you know who grew up in a white upper class suburb outside of yeah. Boston, but I would imagine would have been the work, work, white working class perspective on Springsteen music once he started sort of performing white working class life uh, yeah. for for the American public. And Springsteen, I don't know if you got to saw, see him on Broadway, um, but you know, or at least at least saw it on Netflix or wherever it was on. But but he openly admits that, right? In the Broadway right. show, right? He, he kind of openly admits he's an imposter, right? right. You know, and, I never and, worked and, a day in my life, right? Took took him a couple day, a couple decades to do that. But he, and I I think it is a little bit of, you know, Ben Hamper isn't a Springsteen fan, so he would never know that Springsteen, you know, talks about his father's experience rather than his own, for example. Yeah. But just just from the exterior, how 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 you know it's easy to form judgments on someone when they're on the cover of time and Newsweek uh, when yeah. they're 26 years old. And then, you know, all of a sudden take over the pop world 10 years later. Yeah. We could, you know, what kind of, what kind of working class families, you know, I don't know a lot, you know, are they are working class families, you know, my family actually did subscribe to, to time, you know, it was just kind of like everyone subscribed to time, but, right. but how many working class families were like, reading time magazine in the 70s i don't i don't know it's a yeah. white, at least white working class families that's a really interesting project and, and, and it was not really, a project yet i'll say it doesn't well, exist well, yet but future I, idea yeah. <laughs> i mean you you really don't it's not until you become kind of educated or you know that you begin to get nostalgic in some ways for the kind of working class life that you know, so, you know, when I was, when I was growing up working class, I did not listen to Springsteen. I listened to WABC in New York, top 40, you know, I wasn't, you know, occasionally tuning into WNEW FM, you know, which was the, 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 no one listened to FM, you know, in the seventies, it was all classic rock. Right. But, but then when I, you know, I'm a first generation college student, I started thinking about this stuff and then suddenly, you know, I sort of became a Springsteen fan. Like I was not listening to born to run in 19 what 76 or 75 whatever. yeah 75 when it yeah. came out so yeah, yeah. okay yeah, and I thought about good to see good to think that, that, that i'm not just crazy in thinking this that there, there are some legs here yeah no yeah. i'd love to see you love to see you one day work on that okay we are been talking with jonathan cohen he is the co-editor with june skinner sawyers on reflections on bruce springsteen long walk home 
His new book is For a Dollar in a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. We actually made him connect these two books here. If you have been listening, I appreciate him uh, doing that. Hey, thanks so much for taking some time in the middle of the day uh, here to talk to us, Jonathan. I appreciate it. I had a lot of fun doing this. Me too. And I hope to see you at a Springsteen concert not too long from now. That's right. That's right. was fun. It was fun for me, kind of a mixture of Springsteen fandom and Springsteen scholarship. You know, I really do hope that Jonathan Cohen keeps writing about Bruce Springsteen. Um, You know, life as a whole, he's always going to be asked about Bruce Springsteen. But um, I love his voice. I love his perspective on these things. Go out there and get a copy of Long Walk Home. Again, some great reflections on people's experiences with Bruce Springsteen. He mentioned a few of them, but, you know, he's really put together some nice, uh, some nice contributors here. It looks like if I'm reading this correctly, 26 testimonials from academics and intellectuals and writers about their relationship with Bruce Springsteen. And then he and his co-editor, June Skinner Sawyers, have a nice introduction to Springsteen as well. So again, check it out. I was so pleased that he was able to make those connections between uh, the lottery, his new book. And and by the way, get a hold of this book. I've scanned it a little bit. I read some of it, but it's not just a kind of, you know, bureaucratic kind of history at the lot of the lottery. He's got chapters in here, chapters with titles such as Rivers of Gold, the lottery industry and the tax revolt. Somebody's got to win. Might as well be me. Motto mania in the 1980s. And then selling hope. Lottery politics in the South. He has a conclusion titled Jackpot. Uh, He already mentioned chapter two. Not luck, but the work of God. Merit and miracles in the 1970s. Check out his work. He is, you know, one of the young public intellectuals that I enjoy reading whenever I see his byline, especially when he's writing about Springsteen. I will check it out. So again, thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks again for indulging me on another Springsteen episode. I think we have devoted now three podcasts of our 106 to Bruce Springsteen. Some of you may remember us talking to, I want to say his name is Mark Dolan. Way back in the early days, he wrote this massive uh, kind of literary biography, I guess you could call it, maybe not, of Springsteen. We talked to the curator of the Springsteen exhibit. We actually talked to the bass player, Crawford, I can't remember his first name now, of the Avett brothers who told some good Springsteen stories too. Go back and check out that episode. But again, thanks for listening. And in the meantime, uh, may your way of improvement always lead home. Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overhaul. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermley. And our producer is Casey Lehman. She is out of Nashville. I, John Fia, am your host. Hold up. 